So welcome back to Half Past Capitalism, where we talk about alternatives to capitalism as if they were possible. This show is part of the Harbinger Media Network. Uh, Federica Bono is a assistant professor of human geography at Christopher Newport University in the state of Virginia. She has written about food access, the concept and practice of solidarity, and border relations. Uh, a few years ago, she did some very interesting research on uh, cooperatives in Cuba, which is what we're discussing today. So welcome, Federica. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So um, just to start, I guess I just wanted to get a sense of your uh, experience. You you spent some time in Cuba. Um, this was several years ago, but but you you interviewed several dozen um, Cuban farmers and agricultural workers who are in who are part of cooperatives. Um, so I was just curious to get your sort of high, before we delve into the history and and all the details. I just want to get your sort of high level impressions of like what was that like. Yeah, so I was there in like 2014 and 2015, and I spent several months in a rural area in the center of Cuba. Um, that, this was for my doctoral dissertation. Um, and so I lived with a Cuban family, and uh, I spent time talking to these farmers and, and also the people that worked in the community that were not farmers. And so we had all these conversations about the cooperatives and how they function and um, yeah, the different different community relations that were happening in the in the area. Um, so and and yeah, that's how I got interested in studying uh, more these solidarity relations because that was something that immediately struck to me. Um, that was so apparent that um, I would see people like gifting each other things and food and. Um, so I really wanted to dive deeper into that. So a great deal of Cuba's economy is state-owned, uh, but but I but my understanding is that the cooperatives have 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 become a really big part of the agricultural sector in particular. Um, so so yeah, I guess I'm I'm curious, like just from from the sort of macro perspective, like what does the Cuban government achieve by promoting cooperatives and 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 creating sort of cooperatives? Yeah. So this um, is um, a result of the revolution, um, which was essentially a, a combination between a socialist movement and a peasant revolt. And so um, in order to keep uh, farmers happy, um, they, they wanted to make sure that um, they were not like expropriating farmers. Actually, the revolution was a way to provide those people that had been working the land before the revolution as tenant farmings in very precarious conditions. It was a way to give them that land that they were working on. Um, and so um, so that's a big, big, um, um, big, big thing that the that the Cuban revolution uh, achieved was to keep these farmers happy, right, um, by giving them the land. And then there were also other reasons um, which was that they wanted to um, provide um, the rural population with basic services. And the only way to do that was to create cooperatives. So there are several cooperatives. Some cooperatives have emerged more organically that are credit and service cooperatives where farmers come together, uh, share the means of production to achieve economies of scale. But then there were other cooperatives that are more production cooperatives. And those are cooperatives that uh, were incentivized by the Cuban government uh, in the 70s um, in order to um, 
to really concentrate the population and provide them with like running water, electricity. Um, there was also a food redistribution component that the cooperatives were doing. Um, so that was really a way of um, bringing a, a good quality of life to the rural, uh, to, to very remote rural areas. And they wouldn't have been able to do that if the farmers were all scattered. Fair enough. And, and can, can you talk about, uh, I guess, about the, the overall picture of, of the Cuban um, agricultural and food distribution system overall, and, and I guess how cooperatives fit into it, just so we sort yeah. of understand that? Yeah, so um, the way it works, so there are um, three types of cooperatives. Um, one, like I already mentioned, the credit and service cooperatives, where a farmer family owns their land, but they share with other farmers um, irrigation um, machinery, like tractors, this kind of thing, and also um, the ability to get a credit from the bank, like a loan. Um, and then another type of cooperative is a producing cooperatives, um, agricultural production cooperative. There, uh, there's really a division of labor happening. So all the land is pulled together. Um, and then some farmers will tend to the cows and other farmers will, you know, grow beans. Um, and so there's a real division of labor and then the profits are redistributed among those farmers. Um, and then there's a third type of cooperative, and that's uh, a cooperative that emerged in the 90s after the, the, the crisis, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a huge economic crisis. And so the government broke up different state farms and they uh, created smaller cooperatives where uh, this was the model. They used the model of the agricultural production cooperatives, but the land remains state owned. Uh, so it's like a, a permanent lease to the farmers. And then the way that it's set up is that each of these cooperatives makes plans, uh, production plans um, with uh, the board of the cooperative and uh, with some representatives from the agricultural uh, ministry that come uh, to visit them. And they say, okay, I'm gonna, pre uh, I'm gonna harvest or I'm gonna plant so many um, you know, hectares of that crop or that crop. And then they're going to also establish how much of that they are hang, basically selling back to the state. And then in return, the state gives them inputs. Um, so fertilizer, pesticides, like anything they need in order to produce. Um, there are some uh, products that cannot be sold on the private market. Um, and so that all of that production necessarily goes to the state. And then everything that the state companies purchase, that will then be redistributed to different food uh, outlets uh, throughout the country. Um, so that be the rationing system is a component, uh, but also there are state stores. Um, and then the cooperatives themselves, they can also decide to redistribute or organize the redistribution more at the local level where they sell food or, yeah, sell food at cheap prices to like local schools, healthcare uh, facilities, and so directly. Um, so there's really this, this redistribution system um, that, that is coordinated kind of like centrally or, or by provinces um, that, that aims to bring that food to the people uh, of Cuba.
it's an interesting combination. It seems like it's you know it's it's heavily centralized in 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 the sense that it's coordinated and the sort of purchasing happens in in sort of pretty you know centralized centralized ways at different levels of government uh, and at different levels of institutions. But then at the same time, you have this sort of I guess nominally democratic governance uh, at the local level where where things are are managed cooperatively. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, the cooperatives have a democratic democratic decision making process where uh, the boards uh, of directors they have like general assemblies uh, every month where all the members of the cooperatives come together and they collectively decide on like the production plans um, and stuff like that. Yeah. I find that so interesting because it almost seems like an inversion of what we have like in Canada, for example, where like most of the work is probably done by like migrant workers who have almost no rights, certainly no democratic rights within the workplace. And then the and then the 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 I guess food distribution system is marked by like th theoretical freedom in the sense that there's a free market where, you, you know, anybody can buy from whoever. Right. Yeah. But uh, but it doesn't really you know, it doesn't really have that sort of democratic effect. So yeah. like, I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, just coming from a sort of a, um, you know, from, from free market, from a free market economy, which you've, you've studied as well and comparing it to Cuba, like, like, how do you see the sort of strengths and weaknesses there? Um, so I think a big strength um, of the Cuban model is to, tr is that they really try to um, provide food to everybody. Um, regardless of the contribution to the to the economy, right? Um, so the right to food is something that is inscribed in the constitution um, of Cuba. Um, so there is this connection happening from like from the farmers to the people, and the way that farmers talk about it is also very interesting because they really talk, they really see it as their responsibility that they produce food for the people. Um, and so the way that it's set up is very interesting and has a lot of potential. Um, the way that it's working out, um, like in practice, there are of course, uh, broader, uh, contextual factors that make that there are problems uh, in the system that has to do with the fact that Cuba is a, you know, a poor country, that they are lacking resources, that, uh, sometimes, you know, the, they, there's not enough transportation to get the food to where it has to go. And so it's, it's left in the fields and, you know, it goes bad. Um, but it's definitely more comprehensive in the sense that it's not about like in the free market system where um, you're basically left to figuring out how to get your food on the table. Um, so that's, a, of course, a big difference that it's... The, the country seizes at its responsibility to provide people with food. Um, the issue is that it's not always like they're not always succeeding in doing that because of, I think, factors that are beyond the mere like cooperative system, the way that it's set up. Right. Yeah. So so let's get into that a little bit. I mean, Cuba went through has gone through at least, I mean, I'm sure more than two, but but two notable sort of crises, one in 1989, of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union, where they they lost sort of maybe not overnight, but pretty quickly a lot of their agricultural inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, equipment, all kinds of all kinds of stuff they were relying on for their sort of mode of agricultural production just sort of went away, and they had to make a, like a massive 
uh, shift toward organic farming. Um, and, and I'm assuming that the cooperatives had, had something to do with that. Um, and, and then of course there's the more recent, uh, you know, crisis, which where there's, you know, there's clearly a lack of, of availability of food as well. Um, obviously after 89, there was a very strict rationing system. And today, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can talk more about today, but, but I'm curious, um, if you could talk, I guess, about about the role of cooperatives in addressing both of those sort of crises. Yes. Um, so, in the nineties, um, the crisis was indeed more of a shortage of um, inputs, um, and so that led to huge deficiencies in the population um, because it was a very um, you mentioned organic agriculture, like pre like Cuba was a very uh, mechanized um, um, agricultural system. It has been compared to the California uh, agricultural system. So that level of mechanization and use of chemicals. Um, and actually almost overnight, uh, indeed, they did lose all of that uh, support because the main trading partner was Russia. And so there were a lot of deficiencies like B12 shortages, neurological uh, issues. Um, and what happened then is that people started to uh, basically look at vacant lots in the cities and they started to like um, occupy those and produce their own vegetables and raise chickens. And the state government saw that and they institutionalized that. So the organic farming um, is as it is now is like a network of urban, mostly urban or peri-urban organic farms. Um, that are uh, receiving benefits from the state uh, in terms of inputs, in terms of uh, sci like agronomists that are visiting them, seeing what they need. They get training. There are uh, little shops that they can go to if they need seats and stuff like that. So that's something that is working um, quite well. But what I did see when I was there, and I, I totally did not expect that based on the literature that I was reading before I went to Cuba, I thought it was like all organic. And that's not the case at all. If you go to the rural areas, then you will see that a lot, um, most cooperatives are still producing in more traditional ways. Like they are using pesticides, they are using, you know, chemicals, fertilizers and all of that. So one one thing that the that the government did, and and that's to your question about what is the role of cooperatives to uh, in those crises in the crisis in the nineties, is that they did break up these large state farms because they did recognize that cooperative systems were more productive, um, and so they broke up large state farms and um, basically gave more resources to cooperatives in an attempt to uh, um, stimulate the domestic food production. Um, today. Um, a lot of the problems are related to food imports. And so what we see is that there is a shortage in the stores and that we see that um, Cuba is not even able to provide the rationing that they want to provide anymore. So, um, yeah, there was a strict rationing, um, but there has always been a, like they call it la libreta, like a card where people would get certain items, like they could get, I don't know, a piece of bread every day, some milk, some rice, you know, to, to meet their family needs. And over the years, what we've seen is that that rationing amount has been decreased steadily. 
Um, and so things have been, food items have been taken out and the rice now is not, it's lasting only two weeks, for example, and then they have to find rice elsewhere. Um, so today what we see is that there's uh, huge lines um, in um, um, before the, um, the rationing stores, the state stores, uh, people are even sleeping uh, in the lines uh, in order to get the food. There are, they have um, separated, like you can not just go every day anymore, but certain people can go on a Monday and other people can go on a Tuesday. Um, I know of uh, people having to wake up like super early in the morning at 4 a.m. in order to get a piece of bread. Um, so it's really um, like that. But I think that that's more of an urban problem. And I think that in the rural areas, because of the cooperatives and the farmers there and because of community networks that are available in those, in those rural areas, it's not, there's less a problem of food uh, in the rural areas, more a problem of like electricity outages in the rural areas. Uh, and in the urban areas, it's it's more the opposite, I think. And you were saying it's 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 a result of uh, sort of a lack of resources. I mean, can you say a little bit more about that? Is is that is that the sort of you know reinstated economic embargo after the sort of brief thaw, or is it is there something else going on there? Is there sort of mm, yeah. corruption, government issues? What's what what do you see as the sort of source? I think there are several sources. I think a big part is the, the shortage of resources and the strengthening of the embargo, for sure. Like we cannot deny the role of the embargo and the sanctions that have uh, the COVID pandemic that has drastically reduced the number of tourism uh, sanctions that have been imposed. Uh, you know, tourism has been since the 90s, one of the main uh, sources of income for the country. The pandemic has decimated that. Um, there's also sanctions imposed by the U.S. government that have influenced that. Uh, and, and this is not even a, a Democratic versus Republican issue. This is just purely a domestic policy issue where uh, the president uh, wants to appeal to the Cuban-Americans' um, uh, demographics, voters. Um, and so President Biden did reverse some of the uh, things that Trump did, like there are flights to Cuba um, from the US, but he also made sure that any European that travels to Cuba um, after January 2001, can, uh, 2021, cannot get a visa waiver to come to the US anymore. Um, so they have essentially placed Cuba on the same list for visa exemptions, visa waiver exemptions as Iran and North Korea. Um, so that's something that President Biden did. And that's also a huge shock for tourism um, in Cuba, because now every European will have to go and apply for a visa if they also want to come to the US, you know, on a trip. Um, that's so the US policies are definitely a factor. Um, but I also think there's just a lot of corruption on the island. And bad management uh, of, of different things. And so uh, we definitely also have to recognize the, the, the factors from, from Cuba itself. I don't know too much about like, I know that corruption is like, I saw it all the time. It was everywhere and there's very little corruption. And then there's very large scale corruption more at higher levels. Um, 
but Cubans were all the time complaining more about management issues rather than the embargo, interestingly enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense that one would complain about what one sort of sees directly and has control over. But 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 yeah, it, it, it sounds like it is sort of both. Can you can you talk a little bit about the um, yeah, I guess I guess the kinds of things that you would see, like in terms of mismanagement and, and do you it, it, do, do people see that as like a new thing um, or a recent development or is this sort of a transcendent feature of of the sort of, you know, uh, way the government set up? Um, I can't speak to when it emerged. I think it's always been there a bit. And there is plenty of research that uh, that talks about the role of the black market in a, in a planned economy uh, and how the planned economy is structurally producing shortages, which are then like filled up by the black market uh, and how that system kind of reproduces itself. Um, so that's there's plenty of, of research on that um, and how these two kind of go together. Um, in terms of mismanagement, farmers were mainly complaining that if they contract a plan with the state, um, why is it that in return they don't get the inputs that they need? Um, and so a lot of farmers were waiting on pesticides and meanwhile the pest was eating their crops and they were also complaining that when something like that happened they were the ones losing out like the because because the because the, the company that gives them the inputs which is a state company is not the same company that buys the products and so the state company that buys the product is like well your crop you know doesn't look good so i'm going to give you a lower price and then the farmer will be like, yeah, but I didn't get the inputs. Oh, well, but that's not my problem, even though it's all like state owned. Right. So they were complaining about that a lot. They were saying the shortage of inputs and mainly. And then it's not that it's not there, because then you will see that they could get it via the black market. So it's not that necessarily that there's a lack of the inputs. Um, of course, the black markets you know, it has to come from somewhere, right? So that's mainly people that are stealing from state warehouses that are working there and, you know, stealing and then making money on the side. And so it's a whole, like, uh, vicious cycle, right? That um, reproduces itself and that creates shortages and then fills them up with the black market, but then that creates new shortages. And so... Um, so yeah, so farmers were really complaining about the lack of inputs, um, lack of, um, or then there was another farmer, for instance, that, um, we were talking and, uh, he was a tobacco farmer. So he needs, uh, what they call kujos, which is like, uh, wooden, um, stakes where they can hang the tobacco leaves over. And he says, why does the president of my cooperative why doesn't he order those kujos like months in advance? Like he knows that we have to harvest that. Why hasn't he still ordered them? So that's a management issue that they were talking about. Um, and then some people were also talking how they were, the cooperatives in the area, some, some, some under some presidents, uh, they were doing amazing. And under other presidents, they were doing really badly. And so it really matters who has the leadership of the cooperatives as well. Yeah, certainly the uh, 
the benefits and pitfalls of, of democracy come in, into play there. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your you the sort of paper you wrote was about solidarity between farmers and within f different farming communities. Can can you talk about the different sort of relationships of solidarity that you saw? And, and obviously you referred to this earlier when when talking about how the sort of resilience of the of the rural areas when it comes to food supply. Um, but yeah, can you can you get into that a little more? The different types of solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the first thing that I saw was indeed this strong community solidarity where there's reciprocal networks um, with between neighbors and farmers and farmers would give some food for a cheaper price because they know each other and because they're living in the community. And then um, there were um, different neighbors helping each other out. Um, and then one day the, the family, the, the person, um, the dad of the family that I was living uh, with, he came home with a chicken. Yeah, my neighbor gave it to me. And I was like, why? Well, I gave him uh, uh, some construction material a few weeks ago. So I got this in return now. So it was a whole network of these reciprocal relationships that I found very interesting because it was not just about food. They would mix any type of favors. Um, and then as I started to study this more and started to analyze this more, I realized that there were different, that these community-based solidarity networks were connected at, to different levels and eventually to the rest of the country with the way that the cooperative system is set up. So because all of these people are somehow connected to the cooperatives, um, whether that's the service credit and service cooperatives or the agricultural production cooperatives. Um, these, these relations, these communal relations are taken to the General Assembly, basically. Um, so they're, they're filtering in the General Assembly of the cooperative. Um, and, so, um, and so at the same time, the cooperative has some responsibilities that are inscribed in a law um, that can that are some some more types of institutionalized uh, solidarity because they have to do it. Uh, so, for instance, the cooperatives are responsible to meet the basic needs of uh, their the their members and their family members. Um, so that means that they have to uh, redistribute food, and if they don't redistribute food. They have to redistribute, um, you know, the share in the profits. So you have, they have to, yeah, the, the law says they have to provide for the basic needs of the family members. At, the, in the, at their origin, this meant redistribution of food, but also soap, uh, toothpaste, uh, you know, things that they, um, that, they really, um, that they really needed on a daily basis and are hard to get um um, in general in Cuba. And then, uh, but other things that they have to do is that they have to um, take care of some factors in the community. Like if the, if the doctor's office needs painting, it's a cooperative that has to do that. Um, if a road needs to, um, to be fixed, it's a cooperative that has to do that, or the cooperatives that, uh, that have to do that. So they have to group together and do that. Um, and then, of course, the the, the food that the cooperative produces is then redistributed to the rest of the country. And there's a whole system in place, as I explained earlier, that they, um, 
they also um, give the food to like schools and healthcare institutions um, and then the country itself that you know tries to make sure that the food gets to people that are not living in rural areas um, and so it's interesting because then you see that we have this institutionalized solidarity system which is more like redistribution based together with this community-based networked reciprocal system and then the cooperative acts as this kind of node where these two come together and are being uh, transposed and, and transferred at different multiple scales. Um, so I thought that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I was really interested. You also talked about the the sort of relationships of solidarity between cooperatives. So you'd have one cooperative that produced a little more one year and another one that produced a little less and they would yeah. they would they would sort of help each other meet each other's quotas. Which, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, indeed. Um, that's another thing. So that I saw that the solidarity wasn't confined to the boundaries of one cooperative, but it transcended those boundaries. And that also has to do with the fact that they are inscribed in that community. And so they are uh, linked to these community networks. So um, one, the president of one cooperative knows the president of the other cooperative. So if that cooperative has some issues one year to meet the plans and the other one has a surplus, then they do help each other out. Uh, so be, yeah, just because they help each other out. That's what they said. Like, you know, we just help each other out. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. I mean, and so it seems like, yeah, there's, there's just to recap, there's sort of, um, you know, interpersonal solidarity, interfamilial mm -hmm. solidarity, mm -hmm. intercooperative solidarity, and then all of that in a context of people feeling like they are, like their their mission is to provide food for like the entire nation, basically. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, so I'm just really interested to hear. You know, that sounds like a lot of solidarity. You know, in 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 terms of the motive, what's motivating people? Um, obviously, people are motivated by different things. Um, there's financial motivations, which I want to get into in a second. But um, but sticking with the solidarity, I'm just, you've studied food systems in other countries. So I'm curious, sort of, um, yeah, how, how would you compare and contrast, uh, you know, what you see happening in um, in Cuba with, with, with other sort of countries that you've studied? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's a very good question. And I think in the paper, we try to answer that question, too that okay what is driving people um, um for the solidarity and and that is a difference in different at different scales also um so and also at different especially different spatial organizations so when we look at networks we see that a lot of it is care and effect for each other which is much less comprehensive than if you think of responsibility Right, which can also be a factor that motivates people to be solidary with each other. And that responsibility is more something that is related to that redistributional institutionalized solidarity that is inscribed in the law and that is organized by the state and is kind of a centralized redistribution system um, or a cooperative redistribution system because they also have this responsibility towards their members. And we see that this, this care um, is an important aspect, particularly if we think about care for the land and how that plays a role. Uh, because we do see that, um, for example, we talked about the crisis in the 90s, um, where there was a big food uh, 
shortage or input shortage and people were struggling to get food. What we have seen is that from the 90s, um, cooperatives have, especially uh, the agricultural production cooperatives where you don't need to bring land to the table um, in order to, to be able to work there. So we've seen uh, new members, people that have, have no ancestry with farmers, have no link to the land, are entering into these cooperatives wanting to work. And that has eroded, in some of the cooperatives, eroded a bit that solidarity, especially the intergenerational solidarity. Um, so the way that these cooperatives emerged is, again, um, incentivization by the state, but essentially several farmers pooled their land. And so these original farmers, they were working the cooperative the way that they had been working their farm before that. So they had a strong connection to the land and a strong care for that land. And so um, the redistribution of food was benefiting not just the active members, but also the retired members. Now, when new members come in and they decide, we don't want a redistribution of food, we want a redistribution of the share of the profits uh, based on the number of hours that we work, then someone that is retired does not benefit from that. Um, and so we did see some erosion there, which we call the degeneration. But here then we also saw instances where the community solidarity played a role in trying to, to reverse that again. So a neighbor that's a retired cooperative member, her neighbor is one of the president, like one of the boards of directors of, um, of, of a cooperative. And she can say, uh, come on, we're old. We brought our land to the cooperative. Can you at least redistribute some milk? And so there you see again, this, this friendship relation coming in. So in general, the redistribution uh, solidarity, the institutionalized solidarity is much more comprehensive than the, um, the community network, but they're both important, I think, in order to connect all these scales. Um, oh, and the comparison with uh, other countries, um, I did research uh, in the only other system that I studied was community supported agriculture in Belgium, where uh, very interesting solidarity also towards the farmer, which is something that we don't see in Cuba. In Cuba, it's the other way around. And actually, I was, when I mentioned this to farmers in Cuba, they were like, oh, we need this here. <laughs> um, so um, so the, the community supported agriculture systems in Belgium, the way they work is that consumers come together and, they, um, and the farmer produces a, a range of crops for the families. And there are no rules as to how much food you can take. You, the rule is that you have to take enough to provide for your family, but not too much so that you have to freeze the vegetables. So they, 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 they have to maintain in your refrigerator. So that means that people cannot take too much, but it's not controlled. There's no like nobody at the door that says like, how much did you take? Um, I also uh, remember that there were discussions between those members of the supported agriculture and the farmer and the farmer was very transparent in his finances and um, and the members were like wait you don't pay yourself a salary oh that's not right we will increase our share and so that you can get a salary um, so that's a different uh, type of uh, solidarity but again the care for the land is something that returns here 
because the community members, since they go to the farm and they harvest their own vegetables, they start develop this relationship of effect to the land, which, which contributes to the solidarity that they have towards the farmer as well. They also help him to work uh, on work community work days and stuff like that. The solidarity, the the yeah, the the care for the land is really interesting because I, I almost see it as like another layer of solidarity. You have mm -hmm. you know solidarity between people and solidarity. organizations and stuff, but then you also have solidarity between Towards species <laughs> or yeah, between yeah. humans and the ecology that sustains them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious what what that looks like in Cuba. Like, uh, do you think that the the way that the agricultural system is set up um, promotes or affords a particular relationship with with land or or ecological systems it depends again on the type of cooperative uh this credit and service cooperatives are really families they maintain in their family and so the prop the, the crops that they produce um give their they keep all the profits of the crops that they produce um so um so they have care for the land because of generations already um also, people probably living in the community um, for generations um, will have a, a different type of affinity for the, the farming profession than, um, than somebody who's coming from outside the communities. Um, I haven't seen much on how the system promotes any type of ecological consciousness. I remember actually on occasion that we were traveling um, and um, and my friend was complaining because uh, some Cuban had thrown like some garbage on the street. Oh, look, people here, they don't care. And, you know, so she was complaining about that. So, yeah, I don't see that it's much different than other countries, that aspect. Like there are probably people that are more environmentally conscious than others, just like in other countries. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and and the, the other thing I wanted to come back to is, is it seems to me that in Cuba, you have certainly a different set of incentives than one would expect in like a West, in, you know, in a US or Canada or, or Europe, where you have, you know, somebody who's like, you have distorting effects, basically, of the of the foreign currency, and, and also of the sort of, you know, heightened need for food. So you have, you know, for example, uh, you know, bartender, a bartender at a resort who's going to make significantly more than like a doctor in terms of their annual income. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have, and my understanding is also that, that people, that some of this influx of new workers into the cooperatives is, is, is because that's a relatively well-paid work uh, that you can get in cooperatives relative to, you know, what you might make right. in, I yeah. don't know, another, another sector in, in, mm -hmm. the, in the Cuban economy. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm just curious. Like, I, I guess A is that true, and B, you know, do you do, what? What are the sort of effects of that? And and did you see any sort of, I don't know, attempts to? I mean, you talked about about this a bit, but maybe expand on on any attempts to sort of integrate the, this influx of new workers, um, or, or what the effect of, of of those incentives is on the on the food system. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, I think the main source of inequality in Cuba is this difference in access to foreign currency versus somebody that is just paid in the national peso. That's 100%. Uh, somebody who has 
relations to the tourism industry has different possibilities than somebody who has not. Somebody who has family members abroad has and, and receives remittances has different possibilities than somebody who does not have these family members abroad. Uh, so that's definitely uh, the case. Um, how it changed the food system? Well, for starters, there's also an inequality there um, within the food system. So um, I remember when I was there that um, one day there were potatoes available in the community and that was a big deal because potatoes, when I would go to a restaurant in foreign currency, I would always be able to get fries and olive oil. Um, but, but potatoes are mostly uh, grown around Havana. And so it's very hard to get them to other parts of the country. And they are a lot of, a big part of them are pre uh, preserved for the tourism sector. Um, there are foods that um, tourists, tourists can access that regular Cubans cannot. Um, so that's a big thing of how that, that affects. Um, and also um, people working in the tourism industry, for instance, people that are owning um, like their, the Casa Particular is a form of lodging where Cubans open up their, um, their homes. They have to pay a big, um, a large amount of taxes for that, uh, get a license for that. Uh, but they can make good money um, by, you know, by hosting uh, foreign foreigners, tourists. And then you will see that they put lobster on the menu, which is something that um, will almost always be purchased on the black market, for instance. Um, so there's definitely huge inequalities based on the on the currencies that uh, that people have uh, access to. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to sort of loop loop back to solidarity again. I guess you you make the sort of theoretical distinction between solidarity that comes from structures on the one hand, and then solidarity that comes from from sort of relationships that's more organic. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you talk about that distinction and and that you describe in your paper uh, with uh, Martin Lopmans yes. and um, and maybe uh, yeah maybe just expand on how that yeah. could be useful to to understand the two different types. Mm -hmm. Um, so we distinguish between organic and mechanical solidarity, which is a distinction that Emil Durkheim made uh, first, um, and that we see that is a solidarity that emerges from a division of labor, um, which is usually reflected in institutions and redistribution. Uh, so the welfare state is also an example of that. Um, that's the organic uh, solidarity. Um, and then there's also mechanical solidarity, which is more uh, uh, coming from equality and from kinship. Like, for example, there's something we see in kinship relations or in uh, like the village I was in because people were like in the same boat. And so that brings solidarity as well. Um, but, but what we did in our paper is we created a social, like we wanted to understand the social spatial uh, um, yeah, reflections or, or uh, structures um, or, yeah, I can't, I'm blanking on the word now, but we wanted to, to understand the social spatial expressions, yes, 
uh, of these different different types of solidarities. And so what we see that in the Cuban case, the um, the the organic solidarity is institutionalized. So uh, through this redistribution, there is a division of labor. Um, there are farmers producing certain crops and other farmers producing others. And there's farmers and there's people teaching and there's people in healthcare. And the government tries to bring that all together uh, by making sure that everybody has the food that they need. Right. So that's a division of labor where everybody contributes to a central point and then that central point redistributes these benefits. That's also how our welfare systems work in the West. The interesting thing with the Cuban case is how they manage to connect that, that centralized redistribution system with these more local community-based solidarity systems that are indeed more, they are more organic, but it's not called um, organic solidarity in Durkheimian terms, right? Um, but they are, they emerge more naturally, let's, let's, let's say, um, well, he, he didn't make the distinction between solidarity that emerged naturally or solidarity. Like all, both of them emerge naturally just based on the structures that are there. Like one is based on division of labor and the other one is based on equality. Um, and, and I guess having sort of th thought through these 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 sort of distinctions and also with your on the ground observations, you know, what what I'm curious what you would share with movements you know, that are trying to build more solidarity, that are trying to, you know, move from relations of, of you know, commodification or exploitation to relationships yeah. of solidarity? Like, how, how would you, like, like what, I guess, what tips or what, um, what insights would you share uh, with folks who are trying to do that? Yeah. I don't know if I have tips uh, so much, but I think what I, one thing that um, comes to mind is the fact that Solidarity is, of course, not something that is limited to Cuba, right? So we, we do have solidarity in our communities. Um, but as I reflect on these different solidarities, like we have solidarities in neighborhoods and we have churches that organize some redistribution, which is another part of solidarity. And we have, um, you know, local exchange trading systems where uh, people um, use time as a currency to provide services to each other. But what we see in all these different types of solidarities, I think, is that it's always a particular demographic that is involved, um, whether that's income or race, and it doesn't really transcend these boundaries. And so I think for movements or cooperatives, um, one, of the, one of the messages of our paper is, I think, to really try to create these spaces where all of these different types of solidarities can come together. Um, and so I think a cooperative can play a role in that because a cooperative can unite people from different backgrounds as they become members of a cooperative. And these people bring their own community solidarities, bring that with them to the cooperatives and to the meetings in these cooperatives. And so they will reflect on issues based on their own communities that they come from. And so probably bring those solidarity relations with them. Um, and so I think that's, um, I think that's kind of the main messages of the papers to try to envision some of these spaces where we can have all these different types of solidarities come together, uh, reciprocity, redistribution, um, 
And who knows, maybe even we have the states do some kind of redistribution, you know, I know that's so far. But I mean, this, if you think about it, like we already have food stamps, right? Like that's something that we have. Like, why can't we uh, make more direct connections with our farmers to redistribute food rather than have people resort to, uh, you know, convenience stores where they can get to buy processed food with their food stamps like that's not that doesn't make any sense right certainly room for improvement in yeah. the uh, the role of the state um uh yeah I, I i guess i wanted to 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 broaden it out i guess uh, sort of on that note um you know there there are thousands of agricultural cooperatives in cuba um and, but my sense is that Cuba has been working on a sort of cooperative law and has been trying to expand cooperatives into other sectors where there are, you know, mere hundreds of cooperatives, you know, and all the other sort of sectors yeah. combined. Um, do you have a sense of how that's going or what, what the sort of um, where things are progressing in terms of broadening the cooperative movement from agriculture to other sectors? I know that it's going very slow. Uh, I know that uh, indeed the, they start with the cooperatives, but then the law lags behind and then um, there's not always uh, a central store where they can get where the cooperatives can get resources. So I only know that it's uh, it's going slowly. Um, yeah, I don't know too much about uh, about cooperatives in non-agricultural uh, agricultural sector, actually. And, and I guess so, sort of on a similar note, do you have a sense of, you know, given the current challenges and, and everything else, do you have, a, and, and maybe also from, from, from being in touch with some of your, your, you know, people you interviewed years mm -hmm. ago, um, do you have a, do you have a sense of sort of where things are headed? What's, what's in the future for the agricultural cooperatives, cooperatives in Cuba? Well, uh, several things, a large, like the vast majority of the people I interviewed are not even like, a lot of them are not even there anymore. Um, so it's really surprising and heartbreaking actually to see how many people are leaving Cuba. In fact, um, last year alone, um, more than 250,000 people left the islands. Um, and it's the largest migratory movement in the his in like in um, communist Cuba. Um, even more than the than the crisis in the 90s, the special period. So we don't know what's going to happen because the people that are leaving are those that have a higher education, are those young people that, uh, you know, have the energy to, to work, to change things that are creative, that are innovative. Um, and so their brightest minds are leaving. There's a brain drain. And so, and this is a big problem. Um, because Cuba is has an has an uh, age structure that is more similar to Western countries, um, they have a very high life expectancy, um, which is of course also thanks to, you know, we cannot deny the merits even also of the of the revolution uh, as well. Um, so they have very high life expectancy, um, very high educational uh, numbers. Uh, low birth rates. So they have all these human welfare indicators that are more similar to Western countries than to, um, to developing countries. Um, but unfortunately, their young, active people don't see a future and are leaving mass on mass to the, to the, to the US. 
to us but also to uh, Serbia, Russia, like countries like that, other countries in Latin America. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know what the what the future is going to hold for the country as a whole. Um, I know some some elderly people uh, that have worked their whole life for the revolution are you know in tears when they think of it they're like you know what have i done uh, or what what was my life worth because i cannot defend this anymore um so it's really heartbreaking um i hope yeah that's i don't know that the the, the cuban government is gonna wake up <laughs> and um and realize that uh yeah that they have to invest in their in their and, and actually, now that I think about it, maybe this is an erosion of national solidarity right there. Um, maybe community solidarity is still strong, but since the national redistribution system doesn't work as well, people don't reciprocate their solidarity to their nation and they want to leave. Like we can theorize it that way, I think. Um, so for the cooperatives itself um in the countryside as long as they get the inputs they will probably be fine because like we talked about that's where the food is so that's on the other hand somebody who has studied um and gets a college degree maybe doesn't want to go to farming you know so maybe they're disappointed in that way uh great well cert su super interesting uh reflections um on, uh, on the Cuban system. Um, so I really appreciate your taking the time. I guess as a final question, is there anything, is there anything that you would sort of point people toward if they want to understand more about, um, you know, cooperatives in Cuba or the, or the stuff we've been talking about? Um, I want to say one thing that I definitely want to say is that I really think we have to separate some of the structures that we've been talking about and the effects. Or, or not the effects, or some of the things that we, the, the negative things that we've been talking about. I mm -hmm. really strongly believe um, in this cooperative solidarity system and the way it's set up. I think it's very inspirational. I think it's very, um, uh, yeah, we can learn a lot from that. Um, and I, I don't want to equate that system with some of the problems that the country is having. Um, so I do think that we have to be able to to distinguish and separate these things, right? There's a lot written about cooperatives, but not a lot based on actual research on the island. Uh, me and my co-author and just a handful more have been doing that. Uh, it's because just because it's so hard to to uh, for a lot of scholars to get to Cuba um, and do research there. Um, you need visas. You need um, there's a lot of times there's there's chaperoning and you know state institutions that are um, breathing over your shoulders and and looking at the questions that you're asking and and so and I was fortunate enough not to have that situation so I was able to be there without anybody double checking the questions that I was asking to farmers so I was alone there uh, for most of the time. Um, and then there are some experts of people, uh, some people that have just written about cooperatives for years and probably have some local, um, you know, maybe they are uh, Cuban, uh, have Cuban ancestry or, or some Cubans. Um, and then I'm thinking of um, uh, Cam Camila Pinheiro Harnecker. Yeah. There you go. 
she is one that I think uh, read, wrote a lot of good things about cooperatives in Cuba. Yeah. Um, yeah, your final reflection there is, is interesting in the sense that yet to sort of understand the, the things that are going wrong, you know, that you sort of described the, the corruption and so on as sort of uh, breakdowns in solidarity, breakdowns in cooperation in the sense of, you know, you have, you have people who are not, who are, you know, either because they're not receiving enough solidarity or because they're not giving enough. Right. Probably, probably a spiral of both are, you know, stealing yeah. pesticides or fertilizers or equipment or whatever, and then selling them in the black market. And so you mm -hmm. end up with that erosion that's happening. So, mm -hmm. so, so interesting to, to, to think about that in the framework of, 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 of the sort of positive stuff we've been talking right. about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but thanks. Thanks so much again, um, Federica for, for taking the time and, um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.